You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Fans of podcast horror and Halloween, Friday, October 25th in Austin, Texas at the Nomad Bar at 1213 Corona Drive, we have got an event for you. Attack of the Pod People is an unprecedented party to celebrate the season, featuring members of oneofus.net, Double Toasted, The Night Owl, Horror Queers, Junk Food Cinema, Castle of Horror, Rage Select, Women in Caskets, and the Threequel Club, all performing onstage tributes to the season. All that, and you can get up and sing with Karaoke Underground or compete in our costume contest with prizes. RSVP is required for entry, so look our event up on Facebook or Eventbrite and join us. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber-supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to Oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Super creepy Halloween episode of Digital Noise. <laughs> I'm going to call this one Evil Toys because it seems to be representative of several of the movies involved. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. We have several, like, like there's a, the first three movies we're talking about all have toys or toy in the title. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. They, all and, right. And they all have horror elements to them. That's true. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to be here with uh, Sir John Golson. Hello. Uh, you've been uh, like knighted to the, and now you've just accepted <laughs> you say, it. You say sir. You're the only now. person who gets that. I don't that. know why. I don't know. I just, for some reason, it just stuck in my head. People so. always call me by my last name. Golson? Yeah. So my last name used to be Hamby. Oh. And I had my name changed in 2002, but people called me Hamby. They didn't call me John. And when I had my name changed in 2002, I thought people would revert to John. They just picked up the new last name and just started, kept calling me Golson. I, I get it. It's because your first name, there's just so many, we all know so many yeah. Johns. I had the same thing for a while with mine, and I would literally say, can you not call me Cox? I'm not crazy about my last name. Maybe I should change my last name to Hamby. It's out there. <laughs> why, why did you change your name? Uh, I was adopted by a stepfather who I have no relationship with, and in 2002 I got married, so I took my grandfather's name. He had no sons. Uh, and he was always the constant like father figure in my life, so okay. I took his name. Made more sense emotionally for you to, yeah, to have yeah. that connection. And more family connection and everything, yeah. Fair enough. Plus, it sounds like ghoul son. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. Halloween-y, like our podcast this week, with the exception of one or two titles. But on the whole, this is de- genuinely a all-horror movie cast, uh, a, a list of movies. And we're going to start off with uh, one that actually is not horror movie it's a television show that netflix in their weird arbitrary decisions of what they're going to release a home hard copy of and what they're not they decided the toys that made us is going to be one of those and i had not actually watched anything except for the star trek and the star wars episode of the show and yeah. i was like oh these are cute but hey they sent this to me it came with a cool little plastic figurine of the of the television set that they they use in the advertising for it i was like yeah sure i'll, I'll watch the rest of the show 
And it turns out this comes with a plethora of bonus features on it. So I was like, oh, that is not available. A lot of the times these Netflix releases have next to no bonus features. And you're like, well, why did you even bother? Mm -hmm. I mean, who doesn't have Netflix these days, quite frankly? <laughs> I mean, if you could afford to buy the Blu-ray, why not just get a month of Netflix? I don't yeah, know. I always wonder that when people are like, really big fans of something and they're like oh man guess what Endgame is streaming on netflix now and i'm like wait but you don't you, but it's obvious from your past post that you own every single marvel movie like why is it exciting to you that it's on netflix at this yeah point? Um, people are strange but yeah i i think that that disc three with all that bonus stuff if if you already have netflix and you've already seen the show um i think that disc three is sort of the thing to entice you to make the plunge and go ahead and pick up a physical copy of this particular series. Um, you know, it covers it's brief documentaries. They're kind of fun. Um, the, the creator of the show was apparently has a background in um, the stand-up comedy specials that Netflix runs. Yeah. Brian Volk Weiss. Yeah. So it has a, it's very cheeky. I, I like season one's cheekiness more than season two. I think season two lays it on a little thicker. Mm -hmm. The comedy asides, um, but overall, it's an informative, entertaining series. Um, and I dove into the special features disc because I'd already seen the the show. So I just went straight and watched just disc three and all of the information on there. So And it's cute little, it's, you know, edited, like just little extra bits here and there. Like here's one additional bit of information about any given thing from one of the shows they did. Which is, if you're enjoying the shows, that's cool. They're all, it's well worth watching, the bonus features. It's I just, nothing's really like... I mean, they're all tiny little sequences, except for the, I'd say the, uh, you've got the Todd McFarlane on Star Trek, where he goes on for nine minutes, uh, or eight minutes, talking about what a fan he is. There's Todd McFarlane on Lego as well, for last, for three minutes. And then there's the uh, 11 minute behind the scenes tour of, uh, of the Takara factory uh, for the toys from there. Mm -hmm. They did just announce a third season, by the way, of this. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, what you get on this one, the first season is uh, taking a look into the history of the toys from Star Wars, He-Man, Barbie, and G.I. Joe. And the second season is uh, Legos, Transformers, Hello Kitty, and Star Trek. Uh, the new season, by the way, is going to have Power Rangers, Wrestling, My Little Pony, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which kind of feels like, wow, you're not going to do TM and... You're not going to do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the first sequence? It felt like a lot of the people I know who collect figures, that was a huge thing for them. Yeah. Not me, but, you know, I like pizza, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, I, the the bonus features, the only real issue I had is, like, the the all the little snippets all have the same intro, mm -hmm. and there's a whole bunch of them, and so you get to watch him say... You're watching Toys That Made Us Season 1 and 2, deleted scenes, and then a theme song, and then yeah. like animation of like a box opening. It's like 30 seconds before yeah. each small clip. It was maddening. Yeah. <laughs> I ended up fast-forwarding through uh, through them at some point, but I was like, I can't believe that they attached this to every single one of these little And, little and it's clips. odd, because they have like a section of them, a whole section of these have their own names and are separate, like Barbie's 80s marketing, more stories that made us, G.I. Joe, the story of Cobra. And then there's a whole sequence that says deleted scenes. It's its own separate thing. But they're the same. But they're thing. exactly, I mean, they're not the same I mean, sequences. Short of the, but... unedited, uh, short of the unedited interviews. That's the yeah. only thing that's different on here is the unedited, yeah. unedited interviews. But like I said, if you like the show, they actually do give you more than enough, I feel, bonus stuff here mm -hmm. to make it worth your while to pick it up. And I love that they give you a little plastic model of the television set, which I yeah. thought was cool. But I consider myself kind of a fan of the show now. 
And I look forward to seeing what other toys they're going to take on in the future. Uh, you see, they also announced they're going to do uh, the Movies That Made Us show as a spinoff. You know, I saw that and I kind of laughed at first because I thought, oh, I can't wait to see. Because it was going to be a Netflix exclusive show. And with all these studios now starting their own streaming service, I was like, oh, the movies that made us featuring, and it's going to be all these Netflix original movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> because they're not going to have the rights to, you know, Warner Brothers and Disney and stuff like that. And then I saw the list, and it's like Ghostbusters and Die Hard, and I'm like, okay, like, like, but even then, um, they were, the I was in the, in the press release or the interview or whatever that was announcing this show, they were talking about how, because these have been, done so many times they couldn't get bruce willis in for die hard they couldn't get bill murray in for ghostbusters yeah. so unlike a- toys that made us where they're talking to the presidents of the toy companies at these times uh it sounds like with movies they're going to take what they can get it's going to be more of a sort of like talking to probably like like more like i remember the 80s yeah, on VH1. yeah the here's a bunch of stand-up stuff, yeah. comedians talking about why this was important to them which i'm like all right and i kind of my take on this and i've seen other people say the same thing was like there have been so many things pieces about this already in yeah. these films why not do it about some of the films that were a little more obscure but still had a huge impact i'm suggesting like the monster squad or something like that be like i would like to see something more focusing on those movies that ended up having huge culty legs that no one no one could had any idea like a or the craft would be another good mm-hmm. one where you're like oh not really like celebrated when it came out but over the years has built this huge solid fan base yeah uh next up we have Toys are not for children. I mean, they don't have to be, but they are. But not in this case. In this case, children should not have sex with their fathers. I I don't know. I didn't know where to go in there. In this case. In, the, in every well, case. Chris, I'd like to hear about the exemptions. Cases. <laughs> well, you've never had a lot of cats at once. Okay. Um, toys are not for children is when I got it from Arrow. It's a great save, by the way. Yeah, I did the best I could. Uh, Courtney, Courtney, my wife, was so excited. She's like, oh, my God, you got toys that are not for children? I'm like, I have no fucking idea what that is. And she apparently encountered it at a Weird Wednesday, which mm-hmm. is one of Alamo's screening nights, uh, where somebody had selected this thing, uh, this obscure movie uh, from 1972, because it's just so goddamn odd and off-putting. Not really a horror movie, but certainly horrible and it's uh, and, and skeezy but not full of it's almost like it's more conceptually skeezy than yeah. it is like because you think it's going to go almost softcore porn but it yeah, never it never goes quite there. reaches there yeah uh but she saw it and she thought it was great and i think it was one of those she was with all her friends they were kind of a little drunk happy i mean whatever she found pleasure in it i was like watching this right okay well i'm excited then i'm like what the fuck is this thing I'll tell you this, I've never seen a movie that I could compare to it, really. No. I mean... There's nothing like it. Marsha Forbes, who apparently this is her only credit, and I went looking online, I couldn't find any other reference to her existing other than this movie, plays lead character Jamie uh, Goddard, who is a girl who... Her father was kicked out of the house by her very sort of crazy, overbearing mother when she was young. Because her dad ran around with prostitutes and sex Indeed. workers. And exactly. All the time. Uh, although the, they keep showing the father was very attached to her, nonetheless. Yeah. Like, they had a positive relationship, but not so much mom. 
but she never really got over it at all. And we see she's gotten older and has become sexy, but still has that sort of little girl sexy thing. She wears her hair in ponytails and she always carries her teddy bear around with her everywhere. She gets a job at a toy shop and hits it off with the uh, the other guy working, the guy working there who's about her age. And very quickly it moves to they've gotten married and it's their wedding night. And she's like, yeah, I'm not going to have sex. I mean, she's completely not even slightly interested in it. And she just wants to sleep with her teddy bear and think about how much she wishes she could find her father. Almost inexplicably, inexplicably, the film moves to her deciding that she's going to become a sex worker. And, and then that actually opens her up to the world of being able to be sexual much to the frustration of her husband who's trying to track her down. Yeah. And a wah-wah as her father is finally found but doesn't realize that she is his his daughter. Um, it's, it is what it is. There's this sort of psychology 101 understanding of the Oedipal complex that seems to be the reason this movie was made. Like someone took that class and went, I got an idea for a movie. <laughs> I don't know. It's, there's nothing else I like it out there. No, it's um, <laughs> I I find this this one's kind of tricky to talk about because I don't feel like it's um, it it's one of those things where it's like it's so conceptually I think gross over content gross and and most people that would want to watch it would probably want to watch it hoping that the content was a little bit sleazier. Um, but it's really the, the, the premise is again, the, the worst thing about the movie, you know, if you've seen any of these, like kind of like cheapy sex, double bill, you know, drive-in movie type things. And you can, you, you know what to expect in regards to like the acting and the staging and everything is very like, almost like Doris Wishman movies. Uh, uh, it's, which, you know, it's, it's not like it's good, yeah. Um but it's it it's like compulsively watchable. Yeah. And then you can kind of see where it's going as it progresses and and then you become curious like how far are they going to take this? And and that kind of like keeps you in. But it's uh but it's trash. I mean yeah. it's trash cinema. It's yeah. really what it is. No so, question. Yeah. Yeah, the guy who did this I think only made two other films which were both also very clearly on the same level of trash cinema. Interestingly, there's all this scholarly examination in the special features, though. Mm-hmm. The audio commentary track, I don't know if you listened to any of I it. I did not. The audio commentary track is very, uh, like, film school, classroom, like, uh, just, yeah, it's a very scholarly track. <laughs> it's not. It's not a freewheeling fun time track. It's like right. a track about... Um, father fixations and it, it gets into psychology and it like it gets i mean it, it treats the movie very very serious so i guess this does have its fans who consider it more than trash it does uh you know i i'm, I'm not one of them i'm not one of them yeah uh i mean there's a heather drain and cat ellinger do the commentary track there's that 25 minute uh fragments of a Stanley Brasloff, which is a piece with uh, Stephen Thrower, who is the author of a book, Nightmare USA, uh, where he talks a lot about the very the director who we know very little about, mm-hmm. who was just kind of, he did these three films and then just kind of disappeared. Uh, Dirty Dolls, Femininity, Perversion, and Play for 23 Minutes, which is a video essay by Alexandra Heller Nicholas, where she takes a look at various tropes in this movie and others, like dolls that are used to... Uh, be a symbol for femin- femininity 
a Lonely Am I two and a half minute audio supplement, which is basically just the single version of the theme song to the movie, which is surprisingly engaging. I thought the yeah. theme song. I'm like, this is better song than this movie seems like it deserves. You know, I'm not playing it at my wedding. But... No, no, sure. Um, and then there's just the trailer gallery and the insert booklet. Uh, yeah, this is not for everyone, but my wife is sure happy I have it. Maybe I should be worried and keep an eye on her when her dad's here. I don't know. Oh, I know, right? I was like, ah. does she go to sleep with a toy soldier? She does not, okay. unless you count I think me. You're all right. Which I am not a soldier, but perhaps a bit of a toy. I don't know. Uh, speaking of toys, as I pointed out, yet another movie with toy in the title. In this case, it is one I can say is uh, definitely refreshing in the sense that I honestly thought there was no way they were going to make Toy Story 4 good. 3 just, 3 finished it. Yeah. You got 3, like, that was very emotionally satisfying. It's arguably the best of the story. It comes to a decisive end. And then 4, and you're like, all you can hear is the cash register, cha-ching, you know? Like, come on, guys. And then they ended up making a pretty solid fourth movie. I was like, I don't think it holds up to the third one or maybe even the second one, but it's still really a worthwhile chapter in this in this series. Yeah, it's entertaining. You know, it's interesting too that the and I, I this is not my observation, but I'm sort of paraphrasing here that the first post Lasseter Toy Story is driven by a plot about a <laughs> uh, woman trying to get her voice back. Right. Uh, yeah. All the uh, supplemental material as well is all very. Um, uh, female centric uh, in regards to like focusing heavily on the female talent involved in Toy Story Four as almost felt like a deliberate, uh, you know, thumb to the eye of of Lasseter, who's who's been on the outs since the Me Too movement. Um, but but back to Toy Story, yeah. So this thing's plot I found really, uh, it's. The other ones have, like, a simplicity to their story. Mm -hmm. This one's kind of complicated. Like, the Bonnie, the little girl from the third one, she's starting schools. They go to orientation. At orientation, she makes a, uh, a, like, a little fork creature out of arts and crafts. That comes alive because she treats it like a toy. It thinks that it's garbage. The family goes out of town on a trip. What I thought was weird about the out-of-town trip is they go camping beside a fair but they don't ever have the intention of like visiting the fair, I know. Going to the fair. Very uh, so they park next to the fair um meanwhile the fork and woody end up in an antique shop where an old doll sees woody and wants his voice box the fork is left behind there uh, woody runs into bo peep who has ended up in this town and then the two of them are trying to get back in the antique shop to rescue uh forky it's a really convoluted, complicated plot. Uh, I, I didn't know where it was going a lot of the times. Now, there's an inevitability of the very end of the film that it, it kind of signals early that this might be the way that this film concludes. But I just mean in terms of like actual like point A to point B plotting. Though mm-hmm. I was sitting there going, like, I have no idea what's going to happen next because it's kind of been... Like, the, the plotting is very kitchen sink. And I don't know what happened through drafts of this thing that, like, certain bits and pieces and barnacles stuck on throughout drafts. The fact that it all comes together and makes a whole. Mm-hmm. It's kind of remarkable. It's remarkable. Yeah. Because I do think it is, I think it's rock solid. It is probably my least favorite Toy Story movie, but was still one of the summer's, you know, better blockbuster movies. Yeah. Um, so I, I did really enjoy it. Uh, it's just, it, it does not, 
the through line of the plotting is not as crystal clear as it is in one, two, and three, where they have very specific purposes and stories to tell. This one feels like it kind of reaches for something, but in doing so presents a lot of really strange ideas that the series has never like touched on before. Sure. Like toys that kind of go, what happens to toys that get quote unquote lost? They, well, they kind of go rogue and they live independent <laughs> lives or, you know, this like these concepts, uh, you know, again about like, well, what if somebody just picks up a piece of trash and makes it a toy? Does that make it a toy? And the, this movie's like, yes. So it kind of like, it explores all these little funky, like side thoughts that someone could have about the toy story franchise. Um, yeah, it does feel like it's an assemblage of notes that came up at meetings for previous <laughs> Toy Story films. And, like, they knew what they wanted the ending to be, mm-hmm. but they didn't know exactly how to get there. And they're like, well, we'll find a way to combine all these ideas we never chose to use before and make them come all and like come all together, which they very much do, into the ending that they desire. Which, once again, feels like a definitive ending to the Toy Story series, even though, to all reports, it's not. Oh, because Buzz? What about Buzz? Yeah. He's taking a back seat now for two movies, so yeah. Buzz has got to get Buzz's his time, song, yeah. 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 Um, but, I don't know, maybe we're not going to see Tom Hanks again. I don't know. Or maybe don't the know. guy's busy, you know? Yeah. He's in his neighborhood. Um, I would like to point out special points for Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele as two car- cheapy carnival dolls, uh, Ducky and Bunny, who I think are definitely the funniest part of this movie. Yeah, and add probably the the darkest bits of humor that the series has had so far. Like, probably the darkest, most adult bits of humor that the series has had. There's a lot of horror stuff in this. There was in the third one as well, but this one has a lot of horror elements in it. Like, I mean, the antique shop, the thrift shop, is fucking creepy. It's oh. like... Yeah. All the identical looking uh, ventriloquist dolls whose heads are loose and bobbing back and forth that look like the dummy from Magic. Mm-hmm. Are like, oh, just creepy. Like, wow. I mean, even Forky in and of himself has, is having an existential crisis about existence the yeah. whole movie, you know? I'm like, this has got so much horror things going on. And then Ducky and Bunny, whose whole planet is, is to basically wipe out and destroy humans on yeah. some fantasy level. I'm like, okay. That's weird and awesome. Stay around for the post credit scene with them, by the way. It's totally worth it. But yeah, I think this is, I agree with you. It's, you know, I, I, I've gone back and watched all three of the originals not that long ago. And I thought one is the only one that kind of feels a little frayed around the edges, if only because the animation is just Man, so much significant cheaper. Yeah, I really wish Disney, you know, they're in this remake mode where they're redoing all their animated movies as live action. One of the things I would really like them to do is just simply re-render, not don't change a shot right re-render all of the graphics from the earlier pixar movies like re-release toy story with toy story 4's technology agreed uh you know don't don't you know just so it's prettier yeah yeah. don't change a thing except that it's pretty except make grass look like grass and make people look like people and you know because now it looks like a like it looks like a lego game yeah you know um but I think this fits right in with them. I mean, like to say it's the weakest is not an insult towards it. It's like you said, still one of the better blockbuster releases this year. And there's a lot of bonus features as, as you mentioned before. Um, I didn't find them as satisfying as a lot of the feature collections on these Pixar films have been previously. They're cute. You know, there's 28 minutes of deleted scenes that are worth seeing to some extent or another. Um, there's kind of a funny bit with Ali Maki, who voices Giggle McDimples in here, who goes into the the voice studio and is talking to all the people who do the process of creating the voices. And they do it in a very jokey, fun way that actually is entertaining and well worth a watch. And it's only like just under six minutes. So, I mean, it's okay, 
but where was the uh the short film wasn't this released with a short film i don't remember if it was i didn't see it theatrically so i don't yeah i don't remember either but there's no short film on here okay i was like okay that's weird and usually i think ones that they didn't they've created one for the home releases that was related to the movie in question so i was kind of surprised that that was not there anyway let's move on to family or or sorry and now it's like family because you gotta say it like vin diesel (laughs) that's that was supposed to be us doing vin diesel i don't i yeah i can't do vin diesel uh yeah family israeli horror film the third movie from very celebrated uh israeli direct director veronica kedar who's won multiple awards for her previous two films uh and was apparently kind of one of those uh, even as a student she was winning awards for her short films like wow this girl's gonna be big i have not seen her previous films uh short either short or long god the list of awards she won and nominated for as long as long as my arm but when i got this i got this i didn't ask for this film i was like i don't even know what this is but it looks like it's a horror film and let's check it out um and I'm really glad I did. Uh, this played the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, I think, first in America. And it's an one of those movies you're constantly going, "What is? It, where is this movie going to go? Uh, Veronica herself plays the lead character in this, who is a um, photographer who, in the beginning, is knocking on the door of her therapist's apartment saying, you got to let me in. Her daughter is kind of a, a grungy punk, uh, Talika. Finally, okay, fine, come in, you can wait for her, I guess. And she's obviously kind of a, a cynical little bitch. Um, not a pleasant person at all. But she starts, so why are you here? They start having conversations, so then it starts flashing back as we see what it, the reasoning is, which is basically implied that her whole family is dead. And then we find out along the way of this what exactly happened, which has to do with lots of mental illness and very disturbing scenarios. Um, I thought this thing was surprising and well acted and constantly kept me like on the on the really kind of on the edge of my seat to go even though you know everybody's going to be dead you're like watching it play out i found absolutely fascinating i i, I think this is kind of a um a, a gem like a like a new classic oh it is it's really it's really quite good the uh the film maintains i think the the, the box you know movies got to sell themselves and i think there's a quote on the box that says something like that it's an equal blend of horror and comedy, which sells it as a horror comedy. It, really, it's, it's a psychodrama. Not. Yeah. And, but it's interesting to me that it has, there's a, you know, I think the reason she, she gets the praise she does as a writer-director is there's a tone that this movie has that it could be way, way, way it's dark, but it could be oppressive. And there's something slightly winking about it uh, just enough where it's like, it's almost as if there's an inevitable, so, so the film is kind of making the point that the only way to stop the cycle of abuse is to like literally kill it, mm-hmm. like to stop it dead in its tracks. There's kind of this like eye rolling cynicism to the film that laces it with like just enough gallows humor, like black humor to make it. Um, I don't know. Fun is the wrong word. Yeah, it, it's not an oppre- fascinating. It's not an oppressive film. No, it it is kind of sly, and it is kind of like it has like a a, a strange sort of uh sense of humor to it that's never laugh out loud funny, but is almost like it it keeps it from being that dark. It keeps yeah. it from being like 
I mean, again, you're talking about a family who's dealing with abuse, and it's like that could go some places that you're watching and going, this is hard to watch. The movie's never hard to watch. Mm -mm. Um, And I think she's a really great actress as well. At some point, I think I kind of, I did not look at the credits, but then I kind of put it all together because I was like, this actress is so good that I have to assume she's the writer-director. Right. And then I looked and was like, yeah, yeah. she's the writer-director. Makes, it just felt like the kind of project where it was coming all from one, where the performance, the the writing and the directing were all coming from one person. Yeah. And in this case, it was. Yeah, looking on, uh, you know, sometimes I go, I've mentioned this on the show, I'll go look on Letterboxd to see, you know, is this something I missed that people were talking about? This movie barely has any reviews on Letterboxd. So I don't think yeah. people in the States are familiar with it in any real way and it is worth seeking out like i do think it's you know it it probably is one of the better films i've seen this year i think it was released a couple years ago mm-hmm. uh, to uh shit i can't remember 2016 or something yeah, I but, think. The, but it's new here and and again it, it feels tremendously underseen yeah and part of the i'm looking at this awful cover they put together for oh it's not a great cover no, no it's just like largely red with a little photograph and black and white being held up by a bloody hand uh, of like the family all sitting together and it just says family and you're like that's it and a film by veronica kidar which once again most people here have no idea who that is because there's been no distribution for her films on the whole but this really feels like the birth of a a, a really strong talent that needs to have her uh, eye kept on her family is one of those ones if you know anybody who cultivate uh, cultivates the films for shutter i'd be like send him a note say have you seen this one yet you yeah. should think about putting this up on there because it fits right in with your sort of like eminently watchable but with an artistic sensibility yeah there's a lot of the direction in here which is just like she just makes some neat choices there's a chapter stop thing she does with taking photographs of each family member that i really like the way that all rotates and you're like, well, what's going on here? And then the way it pays off off at the end uh, with the final mm-hmm. photograph is like, wow, that's really creepy and awesome. Uh, highly recommend Family for sure. And you really put this on one of the best of your year list? Uh, I if it's eligible, I mean, I guess sure. it, it got it got a U.S. release this this year. I guess it didn't, and it wasn't it didn't play theaters. It just got its first. This is its first release, right? I believe so. Yeah, I don't know that I added it to my 2019 list because I wasn't sure if I could because I think the date. I think the date on it online was something like 2017 or yeah, something. So might I don't preclude think I, it from that decision-making process. But I don't yeah. think I added it. But yeah, if it's new, if it's new this year to us, it's one of the best films you saw this year. Yeah. All right. So next up, we have Annabelle Comes Home, which a lot of people saw because this is one of the what is it the uh, seventh? Yeah, seventh installment in the Conjuring Universe franchise and the third Annabelle spinoff movie <laughs> and the first. Of these Annabelle movies that I've actually liked okay. Oh, you didn't like the last one? I didn't like one and two, no. Okay, I hated one. Yeah. I hated it. I, I kind of liked it too, but this one, I was like, this is exactly what I'm kind of wanting from these. And it's like, I was joking calling it, it's like the Avengers Endgame of the Conjuring verse. Yeah. Because it's like all these like bits and pieces we've been seeing going, wow, what is that? And oh, there's a cool thing they've mentioned before, but never did anything. It's all the, the evil cursed items inside of the home of the, the two protagonists from the Conjuring verse all get turned on at the same time. So you're like, Annabelle's really just kind of like the office manager here. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all the monsters and demons that come out and and haunt uh this poor babysitter and the daughter of uh Ed and Lorraine Warren who I guess at this point were had headed off to do the events of Conjuring 2 I think in the timeline is so Conjuring 1 had already happened but 2 had not yet um 
so it's like the babysitter and then the babysitter's friend who's kind of like talked her way into being there. And then uh, a guy who has the hots for the babysitter uh, who you honestly can't blame him. But uh, the little girl in question, I believe a uh, McKenna Grace is one of those you're looking at her and you're like, I know I've seen her in something and you probably haven't. You're just confusing her because she looks so much like the girl who is in uh, who was in played the daughter of John Hammond, Mad Men, and now she's on that Sabrina television show. Well, isn't she? Isn't she? In a, she's Captain Marvel, right? She's young Carol Danvers. Yeah, she's Captain Marvel. And then I knew her from the Chris Evans movie Gifted from a couple years ago. Oh yeah, I never saw that like one. She's like the super smart little girl that lives in the trailer park. But she's like... she's terrific here. Yeah, uh, I actually I on the whole really like all the performances, but I think the real star is just the. Director and writer Gary Doberman and, um, well, Gary Doberman, he wrote it as well, who just was like, the point is to have fun here, people. And he puts a movie that's not going to be to every horror fan's taste, but it does know how to have fun. And mm-hmm. there's just so many different new horror creatures running around as they're trying to negotiate through the house, some of them sillier than others. There's like a ghost werewolf, which famously is one of the things people love to make fun of the the uh, the Warrens about because they claim they did, in fact, fight a ghost werewolf at one point. You're like, that's stupid but it's here yeah uh, but the, some of them are genuinely creepy there's one that's like the uh oh, what was it the, the guy with the coins on his eyes yeah I, I forget the name of them it was like uh like the like a like a river sticks the ferryman oh yeah yeah and that whole bit that they do with that is just send chills down your spine creepy i thought but there's one shot in particular in here I thought was so great where the little girl has like the thing in her room with a rotating color disc on a light and it falls on the ground and every time it rotates, something else is appearing like up projected against the wall. You know, it's Annabelle and then it's like some sort of demon creature. I was like, that was really cool. Yeah. And there's another bit with a television that shows like 30 seconds into the future that was like, that was a neat, fun gimmick. Oh, they show that demon a lot, and he doesn't, uh, I wish he were a little bit creepier and a little less, mm. like, uh, you know. Traditional. Like a, he's very haunted house, like yeah. modern haunted house. Um, I liked that the characters in this were a little different from the norm of this kind of, um, this kind of movie. I thought that it was interesting to examine, like, what would it be like to, if you're, to be a little girl and your parents be paranormal investigators, like. How would people treat you? What would they think about you? And the movie gives you some of that. Like, it provides context for how she's treated in school or mm-hmm. sort of what people think of her family. Uh, and I found that coloring really nice. Um, the, the the boyfriend that's interested in the babysitter could have been a very bland jock type, but instead is almost sort of a dweeb. Yeah. Uh, but not like a movie dweeb. Not like he's... It's like what we recognize as a dweeb. Right. He's still like a sweet kid, you know, and it's like he could have very easily just been a completely bland, generic, flavorless, like high school jock type. But instead, he's like this kind of earnest kid who goes and writes her a song and goes plays her a song on the guitar and like. Um, and the the friend who seemed like at first was going to be this generic, I'm like, I'm just the trouble causer who comes in and starts a series of events and probably gets punished more than anyone for it. There's a genuine heart to the way they treat this character as she's there because her father has died and she felt in some way culpable for Mm -hmm. the accident that happened. And that sort of plays out emotionally over it and comes to a a really sweet ending with with the, uh, uh, I forget her name, Lorraine Warren sort of like, 
telling her, you know, it's okay, I understand, and giving her basically a, a, a help with dealing with that. Now, to get to the Warrens, though, the, yeah. the marketing of this film was very much like, oh, this is going to be the Annabelle film that brings the Warrens into play. Right. And while it does, that's a bit of a cheat. Sure. They literally show up at the beginning and are like, all right, honey, we're leaving. We'll see you later. <laughs> Don't go in our special magic room. Goodbye. Right. And then leave. And then are gone, like, the whole bulk of the movie. And then it's... show up, you know, before the credits at the end. Well, they do get, like, the first 15 minutes, they're in it, like, yeah. a lot. And they get a creepy scene with Annabelle that's kind of cool by mm. a cemetery. You're like, oh, that was cool. But then, yeah, they're like, uh, they leave and go, don't stick your dick in the third hole. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so to speak. And, of course, they do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the thing that made me laugh the most, like I said, Annabelle's really just kind of a, a bystander for most of this movie. It's really about all the other things. She's just the idea being once you let out Annabelle, she becomes this magic magnet for spirit energy. So she just switches on every other cursed item in the house. It's just, it was just fun and it was smart enough to give the, make the characters seem real and likable. You know, none of that sort of like you get all too often in these type of uh, wide release horror films where everyone's kind of a dick. No, everyone here is really nice and you're rooting for them. And I like that a lot. And a lot of stuff that appeals to that nostalgic part of me. Like there's a weird board game. That's one of the cursed item that there's kind of a fun, they, 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 they do two different bits with it. And both times it's really fun. Um, but yeah, they know how to have fun, and I hope that this continues. I know they're, for some reason, making a sequel to The Nun, which I thought was okay. Yeah. But it was very much like the, more of the t- traditional spook house, boo, ha ha, I bet I scared you. I liked you. The Nun more than most. Um, it, it was okay. Yeah. I, I liked the set, the set design and the look of it and yeah. all that stuff, but on the whole, it was just more of the, you know... My expectations, too, were real low because I'd heard how bad it was in comparison to the other movies in the series. And and so I I thought Numb was okay, but I I just wasn't crazy about Annabelle 1 or 2. Uh, but La Llorona was not very good at all, I thought. I've heard that's really bad. Uh, but this comes with a three-part feature behind the scenes that actually was well worth watching um, with a look at Alexander Ward, who's a very tall, skinny uh, guy who does a lot of monsters in the industry, and he plays both the ferryman and the demon. And so they go into like the discomfort of playing these roles and then him in costume having fun fucking around with the cast. Uh, the Bloody Bride, played by Natalia Saffron. They go into that and how they built that. And then uh, one about how they created the the ghost werewolf scene, which, like I said, is the most ridiculous thing in this whole movie. It doesn't quite work. It's just everything else is practical and that's CG and it looks ridiculous. And it's just the conceit is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> You're like, ghost werewolf? Uh, there's a tour through the artifact room with a look specifically a lot of the artifacts, including some that they didn't really feature very strongly in the movie, but were there. I'm like, ooh, for next Annabelle comes home again, or whatever they call the next one. Uh, the Light and the Love, uh, which is one of those like contractually obligated to say nice things about the Warrens feature, mm. uh, about how much they loved each other. Yeah, uh, And then 11 and a half minutes of deleted scenes that are far from essential, but okay, there's actually a uh, alternate ending that I that I thought was well worth watching. Hmm. All right, well, let's move on to another horror movie. In fact, three of them, but we'll just go one at a time. <laughs> okay. Uh, called Malevolence. Uh, the first one came out in 2004. Uh, this is a, a series completely under the aegis of a guy named Steven, Steve Ann, because there's an A there, mysteriously, um, um, Mina. And... It 
it feels as I watch this series go along, a guy is going through a school that's specifically about how to make slasher movies because he's getting better at his craft, but not necessarily making better movies with each one either. But it's all so clearly everything in it is grabbed from something else that he liked, you know? Uh, he's trying to do something just different enough and something about there's obviously a sense of like this guy is super in love with what he's doing and is super happy to be here and very excited that I found at least mildly infectious for watching these films. I mean, I think the second one is head and way the best film of the three. And that's not just because it stars Alexandra Daddario, but a good portion of it is because of that. Indeed. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, this first film. It's 1989. Uh, this little, this six-year-old boy has been um, abducted by uh, this crazy f farmer and who has been kidnapping women and butchering them in front of him and trying to train him to be basically like as if he was his son, uh, teach him how to do it himself. So it's like uh, ten years later and a group of criminals who has just robbed a bank and barely got away is hiding out. They find his house, which they assume is an abandoned house in the woods. And he starts basically doing what he does. And you're like, okay, well clearly this is the boy now all grown yeah. up. Um, and it's okay. The gore is just okay. It's not wildly gory. It's, um, it's hit and miss. The acting is definitely more on the miss than hit. It's a little like, it feels like a lot of people who aren't terrible, but they don't have a lot of experience either and, and can't quite get the naturalism of people talking to each other as opposed to waiting for the next person to finish their line so they can say their line, which I know you're like, I think another movie we're going to talk about later suffers from that very deeply as well. I don't know. I, I found this first one at least watchable, if not wildly original. Yeah. I It's fine. Uh, that's always my deal, right? It's fine. Um, yeah, I was. I thought the first one. It's hard for me to think of these as separate movies. I think the first one's okay. I, it's funny because I feel like the first two are they have like different strengths and weaknesses, um, and then the third one I just I didn't really care for at all. But the first one feels really promising it feels like a no budget movie made by someone who could maybe you know step up to the plate and really hit something out of the park i think the plot of it is interesting the fact that they're like hey we stole half a million you know right under a half a million dollars and we're gonna hole up in this house and then the house has an actual killer in it they've got like hostages with them because they steal a car uh so you know they're they're part of the situation too so i thought the setup and the premise for a slasher film were really good i think the uh, the world building stuff about it being a kid that was kidnapped at the beginning of the movie is all, it's all very calculated when you get the big picture of, Oh, he definitely planned on going back then and doing, you know, the second one. And if you want me to go ahead and get to the plot of yeah, the second one, ahead. I will we'll just snowball right into it. Sure. You find out in the second one, uh, you, which is a you, prequel. Yeah. Which is, it turns out to be a prequel and you actually see this guy raise this boy. The interesting thing you find out about the boy is that, he doesn't feel pain uh, in the same way that regular people do, which provides a little bit of an interesting uh, twist to the typical slasher movie because you know, as you know, a Jason or a Michael, as they get hurt, you're like, well, how can they keep going? This movie attempts to answer that question by going, oh, because his nerves are dead. Right. And also it makes it where he is 
told by the person who teaches him how to kill that when he kills people, it doesn't hurt them because he doesn't get hurt. Right. Uh, which I thought was conceptually interesting. But again, you end up with kind of... Um, it, it also expands some mythos that's touched on in the first one involving like the fact that they worship some kind of cow skull god yeah that's never it's never really it's detailed. never really spelled out um but the guy talks to it as if he's getting messages from this cow skull um but again it ends up being sort of a stalk and hunt uh slasher movie uh, and, I, and the second one while the plotting is not as interesting as the first one everything else above the board is better quality wise than the mm. first one certainly but, the acting yeah. i mean you've got didario as the new young lady who's come to town who ends up in a scenario where she's trying to help this kid not realizing of course things are going to go bad mm. for her and then michael bian playing her her uh uncle who is yeah. who has basically uh, adopted her after her parents have died this movie was on netflix for a long time as just bereavement now oh. it's been repackaged as malevolence malevolence to bereavement but uh, you might have seen it before on a streaming platform as bereavement a few years back yep um, and th- by the way, there are special features on all three of these little sort of miniature making of type things that were okay, very underproduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the third one continues on right after the, the, uh, literally right at the end of, of, of one, it starts with the end of the first bereave, uh, the yeah. first malevolent and then continues on for there, except now the killer is wandering around and it definitely is the one where he most goes, I just want to make a regular slasher films. Cause yeah. this one has a bunch of dumb giggling, giggling teens and nudity and people being slashed up and babysitters being killed and that sort of thing. It's, it's the most traditional slasher of all three of these and i think it suffers for that quite yes, frankly definitely uh it just ends up being kind of dull because it has nothing new to offer other than a slightly higher production value yeah i i felt like by the time we get to the third one it tries to answer the question of what happened to the money from the first one that's sort of the hook at the beginning and then it just kind of keeps going from there um and, and it is it, it feels like a very like a you know halloween riff you know very much a love letter to the original halloween but my deal is like as long as halloween exists if you're not bringing anything new to the table like why would i ever watch this movie over actually watching halloween yeah no absolutely um so i really felt like the third one was was the weakest of all um and overall like really ended the series on a sour note because like i said the first two the the first one suffers as well from feeling like it was shot about 10 to 15 years before it actually was. It feels like it was filmed in the nineties. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I, I know that these movies have their fans. Um, I'd actually had somebody give me a hard sell on bereavement a long time ago. And I remember the, the key art from Netflix, which was the guy holding the little kid's hand. Uh, but watching it now, I was like, I wasn't crazy about one. I wasn't crazy about two, and then I really didn't like three. Which, so ending the trilogy that way, uh, you know, I I don't know. Uh, I don't I I don't know that um, I can necessarily give these like a strong recommendation. Um, I mean, I as w- a trilogy, I will give points to this guy who this is his thing. Apparently, he also did some horror comedy. That yeah, they Brutal Massacre, which I saw years ago. Was that worth seeing? I. Don't, it's full of in-jokes. It's okay. a very in-jokey horror movie. It's uh, it's like Gunnar Hansen's in it. Um, what's his name? I'm not even supposed to be here today from Clerks right, right, is right. in it. And uh, 
David Naughton, the the women from Evil Dead One are in it. So okay, it's like it's very it's the cast is filled with uh, horror actors and it's spoofing the struggles of making low budget slasher movies. Right, which so you it's, should know sounds semi autobiographical. But these films are all three of these Blu rays are self released under Mina Films and they all come with a Blu ray DVD and a digital copy, which yeah. is like. And nice slip covers. I mean, nice presentation with the way they've been put together. And I'm kind of like, wow, um, you just don't expect that degree of like, I mean, I guess this guy, this is his thing. He's like got this one thing he did that some people like, and he's going to continue to to try and make money off of it. And But he did it with not a cheap out version. He was like, no, I'm going to give you the best version of these I can. So if you are a fan of these films, these are solid releases of them. I'm just can't imagine ever wanting to go back and rewatch any of them. My deal is, I think if you watch the first one and you and you're middle of the road about it, I don't think you should necessarily progress. I don't think you're gonna get to two and then all of a sudden be like, "Man, I love this series." But if you do watch one and you do find enough to 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 compel you to watch two, I think you'll. I think the first two, they're firmly to me two star out of five movies. Mm. But you know, I've seen worse, and there's enough in them. It's, I was trying to describe them to a friend because I'm like, they're not stupid horror movies. It's not like they're dumb. Yeah. If anything, they're not thrilling. And I think that's right. the biggest problem about you have these slasher movies that aren't particularly exciting. Um, they're not, it's, it, they're not, other than that, they're like, it's not like they're so bad they're good or that they're, they're written poorly. It's just... <sighs> They're they're just a little too self serious. Yeah, they're not. They're there's just not enough to recommend them to elevate them among the glutted field out there of slasher films that they're just all too similar to. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I would watch the second one before I would watch the the other two again, but I'm still not going to go back and watch rewatch the second one. Uh, the next one, this one, Murder Made Easy, which is out on Blu-ray now, which is from quite a few years back, uh, was the feature debut of director Dave. Pal- Palomaro, who I'm wondering if I met at Fantastic Fest or something or at some festival because I got a handwritten package of this. I was not requested, nor did I ever get anything saying, do you want to see this? With a post-it note attached to the Blu-ray going, hey, Chris, like, really hope you enjoy this movie and give it a look. And I was like, I feel terrible, but I don't remember this guy. I must have met him somewhere along the line. But I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. And on the whole, it was getting, like, good reviews. Like, okay. I, I don't mind a super indie, super low budget, like one room type film if it's very well written. Mm-hmm. And also the best thing about this is it is pretty well written. Yeah. Um, it's it's a smart little murder comedy uh, that definitely feels like something that was a play first. It does feel like a play. For sure. At its worst, it has that quality, which I mentioned earlier, where it a lot of the times the acting with the actors aren't, well, at least some of them aren't terrible, but a lot of them, but they all constantly feel like they're just waiting for the Latin, the previous person to finish their line so they can say their line. There's that weird, always just a millisecond too much of a gap between when people say their lines that make it feel just unnaturalistic. And most of them play a little too big. Um, and again, that makes it feel like theater as well. Yeah. I mean, everyone is just a little too over the top uh, yeah. for what the film demands of them in a, in a way that's more... 
in a way that has more to do with theatrical acting than it does film acting, mm -hmm. where the camera's close up so you don't have to project as big with with the way that you read lines or facial expressions or what have you. Well, this, um, the story follows Joan, played by Jessica Graham, who it's the anniversary of her husband's death. Her friend, although at first it's very unclear, friend, uh, lover, what? Uh, Michael, played by Christopher Soren Kelly, they have set up a dinner party and they've inv invited at least one person to come over. And it's clear right from the beginning, this first guy, as they're talking about his relationship to the dead man, the dead former husband, and it seems like there was mixed contentious stuff. They're like, it seems like they just don't like this guy. Why did they invite him for dinner? Why is he there? And they're like, oh, well, we got you. We wanted to, he wanted to leave you this thing. Um, even, and he's kind of a dick about why didn't you give me this before? But then suddenly he starts choking and dies and you're like, okay. Um, uh, so what is that about? Well, this is a planned evening of inviting people over that apparently they felt had a contentious relationship to the husband who's dead and murdering them one by one. But with, you know, the plan is poison for each one, but often they have to, they have to just make it up as they go along. I thought this was fun to watch. Although, like I said, problems indeed with some of the performances, I think that the ending was a little implausible because the, there's a huge twist at the ending, but it was fun to watch it play out nonetheless. It was kind of mm -hmm. satisfying. And yeah. I like that it asks you, it has you asking enough questions as it goes along about, wait, what is, what's going on here to make it where, when they do, do reveal the twist at the end that I found it very satisfying. I was satisfied with it. My, uh, my girlfriend left uh, about 10 minutes in when she realized, you know, some, there's some things just earmark a movie as, having no budget as being DIY and she doesn't necessarily have the patience for that. Uh, and, and so she could detect right off the bat that like, okay, this is, this is very, very, very DIY. Um, yeah. but I stuck through and I'm glad I did. I don't know that I liked it from the get go. I actually think it took me a long time to like it. Um, because again, I, I felt like everything was just a little too theatrical for a film. Yeah. Um, but by the time it concluded, I, I thought it was, I thought it, it mostly worked at what it was trying to do. I think, again, I think it should probably be staged as a play. I think they'd have more success with that. Agreed. And honestly, the film even makes reference to the fact that it's a, it's a, uh, like a love letter to like mousetrap and plays like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, overall, I thought this was pretty good. And, and this is one, again, that strangely enough, um, even though it is an indie film, you have these people that like load it with special features. Uh, one of the special features that I thought was really interesting on here was the, um, the movie was essentially shot in rehearsals with an iPhone. Uh, basically like the director sort of storyboarding on the fly with his iPhone and editing a version of the movie together with his iPhone that his cinematographer could then use to know what kind of... Almost a storyboard, uh, if you will. Yeah, of, of what kind of shots to get. They apparently shot this in anamorphic film, huh. which, uh, to me, I'm like, I don't know why you'd need to. Because in a small you're house. You're literally, yeah. like, shooting in a... Yeah, you're shooting in a little in a little house, and I'm like, you... you Because of that, typically, uh, you're, you're shooting wide for these vistas, the anamorphic lens distorts things that are on the left-hand or right-hand side of the frame. Now, this gets kind of technical, but often in this movie, because you're talking about two shots of people, somebody ends up with a head that looks like a lava lamp. Because yeah. it's like the anamorphic lens is squeezing their face 
because the sides of that's what a size of an anamorphic lens does is it, it contorts the image on the sides. Right. Um, so that and there was a weird like seasicky kind of like back and forth movement to the camera. Yeah. That kept going. That it's I felt not was... quite handheld. It's sort of like it's on a gimbal and then they're sort of rocking the gimbal. I mean, and it is a really weird stylistic choice that does make it feel like, like you're on a boat. It's supposed to make it <laughs> attempt to make you feel like something is wrong. Something is off center, but it's too noticeable. Yeah. It's, it was very strange. Um, and again, those are really, those, those are kind of getting in the weeds technically. But overall, yeah, I, I thought this was worthwhile. I did not, uh, I did not feel at the end of this, even at the, even though at the beginning, there was a little bit of an eye roll on my part of going like, oh, I got a natural watch another one of these like dirt cheap indie movies for for uh, <laughs> for digital noise. By the time I got to the end of it, I was like, okay, that was worth my time. Okay, that was not that was not an hour. It's only an hour and fifteen minutes. Yeah, that was that was an hour and fifteen minutes well spent. At the end of the day, yeah, agreed. Uh, it, weirdly, the blooper sequence, which is very long, they're not bloopers. They're just like the dailies, basically. Oh, I didn't watch that. Yeah, it's just like the dailies of like, ah, oh, shit, I didn't get that line right. Okay, let's shoot it again. Stuff like that. We're like, it's not really bloopers. I don't understand why you included that, but I th- I get the feeling this is one of those. This feels like one of those releases that comes from Indiegogo where like then now we put together literally everything we have for the fans. Did you notice it has a reversible sleeve? It has alternate cover art. Yeah, it's like okay, that's I actually kind of prefer the the alternate art, which is more like looks like an '80s video store mm-hmm. horror pick, you know. But uh, yeah, this is it's not bad. For sure. I hope that the director, if he hears this, doesn't think of that as insulting it with faint praise. But uh, moving on, a movie I will insult with open praise is The Lingering. I'm a big fan of ghost story movies. I'm a big fan of Asian films. I'm a big fan of Asian ghost stories. And The Lingering, I don't even know if it knew what it wanted to be, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. It felt like a movie they figured out what the twist was going to be when they write the day they shot it. And then it feels you're like even then i was like that can't be right i watch it going that can't possibly be right and the movie's like I, you know what don't worry about it i couldn't understand the structure of the opening of the film there it opens with the boy and the mom and they're in the house and they're going about their daily stuff and then there's like the cold open title the lingering and then immediately after that is the first scary scene. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why didn't the title come immediately after the scary scene? Mm. Like, why was the cold opening so boring? Why did they, why wasn't, if they were going to just put it after some mundane house stuff, <laughs> why didn't it just open with the title and then move on from there? And I got really fixated on like that intro of like, wait, why did the title card happen right then when if they would have just held it like two minutes later, they could have put it after the scare and it would have been so much more impactful. But then that the like opening scene keeps going and you find out that the first like 30 minutes of the movie are not even where you're going to spend the time of this right. movie. Like all of a sudden it's like, oh, and now it's a few years later and this little kid is a grown man it's, and it's he's like, like a chef. It's like just enough backstory or way too much way backstory, too much backstory. Can, for, to set up where they want to go with the whole rest of the movie. And you're like, that was largely irrelevant. Yes, uh, it was. Uh, you know, I feel like you could have made this movie entirely without it and covered what was important in like a two minute conversation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and even the guy doesn't have the same fucking name and it's the same character because apparently they keep calling him dawa and it's insinuated that he can see dead people when he's a kid um and knowing that like okay so i guess his 
dad died in, in some sort of industrial accident, um, whatever, but he lives with his mom. Uh, but now when he's all grown up, they call him something else, uh, Zing Hong, and maybe that I, I don't know enough about Chinese to know why that would be two separate things, but whatever. And he is a chef who's trying to get open up a place and he's trying to get a deal and he ends up back in his hometown because his mom has disappeared, assumed dead. So he's like, well, we're going to sell the house. And right off the bat, it's clear the house is like way fucking haunted by something. And it's insinuated in the first part that like it was like the ghost of one of the other guys who died in the accident with a father for reasons I'm not clear on. But so they just continued to live there with that yeah. guy around, I guess. After that, I guess I don't know. It seems like that was like a not livable situation. But anyway, it just it's a bunch of really bad CG and silly scares. It's, you know, the rocking chair that rocks until you look at it and it stops or the, you know, the person's looking at you from the crack in the door, but you open the door and no one's there. It's like there's all this stuff in it that's like you've seen it. In, literally yeah. like hundreds of times yeah. if you're a horror fan and even for that it's not done those scenes aren't done well and yeah. it's shot on like that sort of like high def video when you can tell it's high def video when watching it you know nobody filtered it to try and make it like look like film at all so yeah. it has that sort of like television-y look uh it's this is like i, I was baffled why this is a movie they would have picked to release here because it's not good. And like I said, that twist at the end where I'm like, considering the stuff you've shown us already, I'm not sure that's possible. But whatever, movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, think if, I think if you've seen more than two horror films in your life, this, there's not going to be anything worth watching in this. No. Now, I, uh, did, I did more enjoy the next Asian film, even though it's a complete mess in its own way, which is Kung Fu Monster. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is in the tradition of Stephen Chow's sort of totally absurdist and and Wang, what was it, Wang Jing's absurdist, like uh, wuxia films. And this is just batshit crazy martial arts period piece stuff in the Ming Dynasty with uh, a bunch of monsters or a specific monster uh, which is most of the time a little cute adorable monster who is like just lovable but then when he gets upset he turns into a giant monster but even then despite a little intro where it's like oh and there's this warlord who is capturing monsters and he's torturing the little monster to make him like vicious so he can use him as in war but then the official animal trainer general is like oh but you're so cute so he runs off with the little monster not allowing him to be abused and then later it's like okay so sometime later uh there's a group of people who are gathered together arguably to rob money from officials um, and they're all kind of don't really know each other or even like each okay, other. So that stuff was the stuff that to me was super murky when I was watching it. I never had a handle on who they were, why they were, what the relationship exactly was. Yeah, they're all basically so, like brigands. Okay. But they didn't really know each other. Okay. And they kind of by coincidence all end up together in this group uh, huddled in this old abandoned inn uh, and brought together by this woman, a uh, female warrior, who it turns out she – there's – it's not gold she's after. It's something else, basically. And it is a series of very wuxia-type fights and silly, like, slapstick and really bad, even for Chinese movies, CG. Like, wow, bad. Um, just not even trying. But I, it made me laugh pretty consistently throughout I it. I think this might be for kids. It's totally for kids. Okay, because I was like, it's so difficult for us when stuff comes out here where we are 
you know, we don't, we're not greeted with any marketing that accompanies anything. It's just sort of like, here's Wogo USA, and they're releasing Kung Fu Monster. And it's like, it just gets released with everything else. So we don't know, a lot of times as Americans, what, <coughs> um, what market stuff is intended for. It's all just sort of here is everything from China or here is everything yeah. from Japan. Don't worry about it. So, it's from, yeah. it's from right. this company. You so I'm like watching this, this in like a few minutes into it and I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is a kid's movie. Like, yeah. like this seems very Pokemon, Digimon. Like this seems like a kid's movie to me. Um, and it's real clownish. The, a lot of the humor actually works uh, yeah. really Surprisingly. well. Surprisingly. Yeah. There's a part where the guy is like summoning his chi and, um, Someone coughs like you would if you were trying to make a golf shot or a basketball shot where yeah. it's like you're about to do it and somebody's like, Ugh! so he's like, and somebody's like, Ugh! and he has to like start it over again because yeah. the guy throws him off. I thought that I'd never seen that before. I thought that was really clever. I like the part where they're throwing the knives. Into him yeah. Well, yeah. Where, they're, where he says he's the what's the detective that we watched the other movie about. The oh, yeah. Um, detective D. Detective. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he puts the. Uh, he puts the eyebrows on. He has them like strapped right. to a string. <laughs> right. The old wise eyebrows on. This was. Um, There's a lot of gags that I feel like you're not going to get unless you watch a lot of these yeah. type movies. But they are funny if you watch a lot of these type movies. Yeah. But overall, this isn't a keeper. But there's certainly more than enough stuff that's just so odd and 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 genuinely funny it's that I enjoyed it. Just a little shorter, and this would be yes. probably a stronger recommend. It's it's a little bloated, um, and it makes it a tough. It makes it a little tougher to get through than it would be otherwise. I think I think about it because it's like an hour and forty five minutes long, and I think that you know we've seen some of these historical epics where it's like they feel like they have to be that long simply because they're period pieces and no other reason other than no, no. When the, when the, uh, you know, when the people, when the soldiers all grab their spears, we have to show every single soldier grab a spear. You right. know, it's like that sort of thing. It's like, it was just, no, we get it. Like, I don't have to see all of that. Like, right. let's, uh, yeah. let's get to it a little quicker. Yeah. I just wish, I, I just wish especially that the back half of the movie was a little breezier. Agreed. Um, and but weirdly, this is by Andrew Lau, who is a major oh, yeah. Hong Kong director. Did, oh, I don't like, think I picked that up. The Infernal no. Affairs trilogy, yeah, which is I one agree. of the best yeah. ever. I know the name. Um, he's made a movie uh, under the the uh, under Martin Scorsese, Revenge of the Green Dragons. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a a huge name, and I guess he was like, "Well, I got to make one for my grandkids." I guess so. I guess so. I don't. I don't really know, but I, I you know, if you like this sort of thing, it's totally worth a watch. Oh, it's better than the uh, the other. What was the one we watched? The the Cavern of the Worm or the Layer of the yeah yeah or whatever like that. that was. Yeah, that, that it was, was the again, second movie in a series. Yeah, but it's sort of the same kind of vibe, which is like it's high adventure, it's fantasy comedy. This was a stronger. Uh, version of that type of movie. Yeah, the comedy worked better, yeah. quite frankly. <laughs> uh, next up, we have a horror film that did get released here in America, Crawl. I actually, they didn't screen this for press, and I kept hearing, no, it's really good, and I'm like, why didn't you guys screen this for press? So I grabbed one of my guys, said, come on, we're going out to see Crawl, we gotta review it. And I'm really glad I did. Uh, this is Alexander Aha, who certainly I don't love everything he's done, but there's no question he has made several important contributions to the field of horror along the way, and is considered respected director in the horror mm-hmm. field and when i found out this is about people being trapped with giant alligators trying to kill them i was like okay this is gonna freak me out unless it's really stupid like the sharknadoes or whatever i mean like the whole genre of people trapped with larger than normal sized animals menacing them has is is a genre a subgenre of horror that has gotten kind of 
ditched into just super low budget, crappy made for sci-fi channel fare over the last 10 years. But this is one that actually, no, let's take this seriously. Let's do this. Let's make it scary. Let's make it work. And I think on the whole, the story of of this uh, daughter who comes in the middle of a huge hurricane to try and find out what happened to her father, played by Barry Pepper, uh, and, you know, to get him out, say what's wrong with him, because he's kind of an alcoholic, kind of a, a dingus, if you will. Um, they both get trapped underneath the house as the waters are rising. There's alligators under there with them, but there's also alligators out there. I enjoyed the crap out of this. I thought it was exactly what I wanted from this kind of monster movie. Um, it is kind of doofy, no question, but it's doofy in the way that was enjoyable. Yeah. I expected it to be a little bit more... Um, I expected to like it, I think, a little bit more than I did. Mm-hmm. It is exactly what it's advertised as. Mm-hmm. So it, it does not... Um, if you look at it, and I think if you go, that is a movie I want to see, you will probably be fulfilled by it. If it is like, that does not look like something I would enjoy, you're probably not going to like it, because it is what's on the box. Yeah. It is people trapped with alligators trying to escape from alligators. Right. And there's occasionally a, getting eaten by there, them. Yeah, there's a thing to movies like this where I kind of like them to set up and pay off and set up and pay off that I felt like sort of wasn't in here. A good example of, like, kind of, I think about, like, the first Wrong Turn movie Mm -hmm. and how in a lot of that movie, I was, the characters were put in situations where I was sort of like, well, how are they going to get out of this? And then they would get out of it. Mm -hmm. And then they would get another situation where I would go, God, how are they going to get out of this? And then they would get out of it. I felt like Crawl, if anything, was missing some of those kind of situations where I wanted more of those micro scenes of how are they going to solve this problem and then watching them solve the problem. But the movie isn't really structured like that. So that's kind of on me for wanting the movie to, to do something that the movie wasn't necessarily doing. Um, I liked this. Okay. Uh, I, I thought it was fine. I just, I was hoping, I was hoping I would get into it and find it a little more fun or a little more thrilling. And I kind of didn't. I I did marvel at a lot of the technical aspects of it because mm-hmm. you know the whole movie it's one of those movies where I think it's real easy to take the special effects for granted. You can look at the alligators sometimes and go, well, that alligator doesn't look very real, but you're never considering the fact that the storm that they're in is also completely unreal. Like, yeah, like they're not in a storm, right? Just straight up. And I think when you really consider that on a technical level, that this film has literally special effects from top to bottom and almost every single frame of the film yeah and the kind that get taken for granted easily because we go oh yeah we've seen rain before and so we just take for granted that it's raining where in reality they're you know they've got machines that are creating the rain or they're you know they're set up in some kind of a tank where they're shooting the people they're in a tank sound system yeah uh, sound stage yeah um and so i think there's a lot of technical stuff that probably gets taken for granted i did not watch the special features on this to see them get into that Mm -hmm. i thought this was a a middle of the road b movie that i really wished i would have liked more um Mm. but you know we talk about damning with faint praise i didn't think it was bad i just i i wanted it to i wanted to feel my blood pumping a little bit more than what it did and and it left me kind of cold but it was fine. It was exactly what it said it was going to be. So I don't, I, can I complain about that? Right. I don't know that I can. I think it's for me, things that, that deal with stuff coming at you in the water freak yeah. me out. 
alligators in any scenario fucking freak me out. So right off the bat, I'm like, all right, movie, you've already got me scared just thinking about watching you to some level, yeah. like discomforted. Uh, I like the performances of both the lead. They have a convincing relationship together. That's true. Um, that is true. On the whole, despite the, 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 the alligators don't always look, when they're in the water, they're clearly CG. When they're not in the water, they appear to be practical, at least some of the time. And I think for what it is, they're fine. I, I didn't really have any complaints. I did think there were a certain amount of like, how are they going to get out of this? And that was all attributed to the fact that you forget that the alligators are far from their only problem. This is a massive flood and the waters are rising and they clearly cannot stay under the house. They're eventually mm -hmm. going to have to start moving up and up and up. And there are alligators not just under the house. They're, yeah. they're all over the goddamn place and apparently have not been fed well for some time. Um, <laughs> I had fun with this. I certainly don't think it's like an A film. It's more of a B plus, but it delivered to me exactly what I was hoping for on the whole. There's a couple like, well, why don't you just do this moments that are kind of silly? Like they're trapped under the house and they're showing the wall to the outside. And you're like, you literally have like a shovel, like just start hitting that shit. It's like a thin layer of bricks that are not even like pieced together. It's like, they're like more like, Oh, every other brick. And yeah. you're like, you can see everything outside. Just poke through there. <laughs> What's going on? And there's a couple kills that are great. There's one guy who literally gets just like torn to pieces by multiple alligators at once. I was like, that was cool. I like that. There's a little, they, they, they introduce other characters just long enough for them to die, basically, mm -hmm. which is okay by me. Yeah. Um, there's an alternate opening, which that, is a motion comic. That actually may have been my favorite part of the movie is the stuff that took place at the convenience store across the street. Yeah. I think that sequence overall is probably my favorite part. It was very cool. Uh, there's an alternate opening for five minutes, which is a motion comic, which has nothing to do with these characters, just a family that's stuck with the flooding and alligators come and kill them. And it's cheap animation. Alexander Aha felt the need to do a short introduction about why he thought it had to be there. There's six minutes of deleted and extended scenes. There's 28 minute uh, beneath crawl, which is a standard, but informative exploration of the, the, the history of it, how it got started, the story, yada, yada. Uh, category five gators, the VFX of crawl, 11 and a half minutes to get much more into how they created the digital alligators. And then alligator attacks, which is literally just all the kills from the movie, all the alligator attacks. And like, if you, anytime you want to see an alligator doing shit, it's a minute and a half of alligators doing shit. So, yeah, yeah for your people who are like, that's all I needed to see. I well, fully expect go. this to get a DTV sequel in uh, in 2020. Yeah, if fully, not sooner. It, yeah, it's just it's a whole series of crawl movies I expect from here on out. Our last film is the arguably the most discussed horror film of the year, certainly, which is Ari Oster's follow-up to Hereditary, mm. Midsummer, which I was worried because you had left the Blu-ray here. I was like, did you forget it? Did I didn't. I, I bought the 4K and you and I talked about it. Oh, dude, I just yeah. didn't remember. So yeah, and you no, you and I talked about the movie on oh. uh, on uh, one of us. That's true. Yeah, you were the, here for that review. Yeah. Um, highly uh, suspect reviews. One of the few highly suspect reviews. I think one you've been on like two, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I I don't remember what you thought about it when we were talking about it in the film. Uh, that was long ago enough. Oh, I hated it. This <laughs> fucking just garbage. Josh, you okay? <laughs> I don't believe you. But I will say, you guys listen to that review to hear both of us opine about our opinions on the film. I will say, in terms of, I would say you, no matter what, you may know somebody who's tried to convince you absolutely do not see this film, and they're wrong. You, you know, you your results are going to vary. But I've know people who think this is the best film of the year. I know people who think this is completely worthless. 
I'm not able to predict who's going to think what. I have to say, now that it's out on home video, I've kind of kept an eye on the conversation because I was curious how things would swing. And because a lot of people approach a lot of horror films with a chip on their shoulder oh, yeah. and go, all right, I heard this was scary. Now scare me. Right. And it's like, that didn't scare me. You always that see that. Sucked. You always and, see yeah. that discussion. It sucked because it didn't make me scared. You're like, yeah. you know, that's not the only thing a horror movie is supposed to do. I have to say, I've seen a lot of really positive responses to Midsummer from people who did not see it theatrically that saw it on video. Um, and so it seems like, it seems like people actually dug this one. I thought it would be far more divisive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Hereditary was a little divisive and I I felt like this one had more reason to be divisive. Uh, But I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that it seems like the general consensus on it is that it's pretty damn good. Uh, I've seen a lot of people go, no, it's good, but I like Hereditary better. I think it's the better film. And I completely feel the opposite. I think this is the better film. It's just not, trying to scare you really it's not that kind of film hereditary is trying to scare you and it has some scary genuinely scary stuff this is not that movie and i despite being from the same director they're just not the same kind of movie like this almost is a horror comedy at points just Mm. one of those squirm comedies it's very awkward it's so incredibly beautifully shot did you see the whole thing now where apparently there's like subtle cg melding of the parents and and sister's face into like the tree line and stuff hidden yeah, throughout the whole movie yeah. kind of like want to go back and rewatch it again now that i've read that to, yeah. to look for that but i i think everything about this movie is really terrific with the possible exception of the friends when they end up sort of like meeting their ends it's almost like i'm surprised they showed it you know it was like it felt like the kind of movie that would leave it ambiguous whether or not they had actually been killed or mm-hmm. not. But I I think this is one of those movies that is going to be discussed and analyzed much more than Hereditary was, quite frankly. And yeah. I, I think it's definitely the work of a more mature director who's learned a lot from that first experience. The one big surprise is they'd initial, they've announced that the Blu-ray edition would come with a digital code, which would be the only way you could watch the director's cut except for a few theatrical screenings they did. And the the director's cut is considerably longer and different, apparently. And guess what? This release does not come with a digital code. So whatever plans there were for that apparently have been temporarily scrapped. It's Apple exclusive. Is it Apple exclusive? Is that how that is? The director's cut is Apple exclusive. So how do you even get it? Do you just have to order it, pay for it specifically on Apple? Yeah, basically it'll it'll be offered through Apple's ecosystem. And, yeah, that's the only way you can watch well, the, the director's cut is to buy it through Apple. Well, that is super lame. I so, hate it when people do that yeah. sort of thing. I'm just like, well, Apple just wheeled up a, a bunch of money to your front door and said, what do you think? And Oster yep. said, I got another movie to make, so I'll take <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, I, and one thing I'll say for sure, Florence Pugh, once again, proving she's one of the finest actresses of her generation and will be a household name within five years. Oh, yeah, she'll by the end of 2020, she's she'll be the... Uh, She's the bad guy in Black Widow, so her star yeah. is, like, right around the corner. And she was just in, yeah. I, somebody else I know just discovered, wait, that girl's the same girl from Fighting With My Family? Yeah. Like, yeah, who gives this completely different type of performance and is completely engaging and wonderful in that And film. apparently an adaptation of Macbeth? Yeah, Lady, well, it's not. 
It's not. La- okay. Lady Macbeth, it is not actually anything okay. to do with Macbeth. Oh, wait, uh, but how is there something called Lady Macbeth that has nothing to do with I will Macbeth? loan it to you and All you right. will go, holy shit, that was a great movie. Okay. And she's like, I mean, the director of this in the extra feature, uh, 24 minute, 53 second, let the festivities begin manifesting Midsummer. The director says, yeah, I saw this movie, Lady Macbeth. And I was like, holy shit, who the hell is this girl? I've never seen her before. She's incredible. I got to get her for this movie, which had apparently been gestating for quite some time. And she's also in a ghost movie called Malevolent. Not Malevolent. Not Malevolent. For anybody that heard us talk about Malevolence and thought it was Malevolent. It's not. (laughs) Uh, And it's also not Maleficent. It is not. I'm less impressed with Jack Rayner, who I still think is the poor man's Chris Pratt. Yeah. Like, he just, he really does feel like one of those actors that only has a career because he looks a lot like Chris Pratt. And I've never seen him do anything terribly impressive. But, um, yeah, uh, she's in uh, Little Woman, which is coming out soon, too, which I believe is Greta Gerwig doing a new take on Little Women, which I'm like, oh, I love Gerwig's film so far, so all about it. Anyway, yes, you get that one extra feature, and then there's a silly bear in a cage promo, which is about a minute long, which is... The idea, like, there's a toy associated with this film for kids who loved it. I, it's a, it felt like a, a goofy off joke that they did just for to, somebody thought of on one drunken night. Like, yeah, sure, let, fuck it, let's film that. Yeah, it's for hardly essential. I'm kind of saving the next viewing of this for the director's cut. Yeah, I want to, I want to give it a little bit of time, and I want to, I, you know, I'll go over to somebody's house or something. But I'll, I'm kind of saving my next viewing for the director's cut. I'm right there with you. I kind of like I'm still absorbing my first viewing of it, quite frankly. Um, But yeah, I I really want to see the director's cut. So like I said, massive disappointment that I when I realized this was not going to have that on that. So buyer beware. If you're thinking about owning a copy of this, buying the Blu-ray is not the way to get that extended edition. Well, that is it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you for listening. Um, We'll be back soonish with more i didn't have a new stack to give you this week because aaron just recorded with me yesterday and he grabbed all of the ones i had watched that's okay yeah you're like ha, i can use a break i'll loan you lady Macbeth, and then you'll have something I'll to lady watch Macbeth. <laughs> i'll join you for lady Macbeth cast <laughs>